Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John Fugelsang. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Jason Nichols back to the show. Let me quote his new piece in Newsweek. As Republicans and Democrats spar over the nation's southern border, as well as entitlements like Social Security and Medicare, they might be happy to learn the former is actually the answer to saving the latter. Congress must pass an immigration reform policy that encourages legal migration and is equipped with a system of thorough vetting, not in addition to saving Social Security and Medicare, but as the only way to truly do so. We are always thrilled to have Dr. Jason Nichols on our program. He's the award-winning full-time senior lecturer in the African-American Studies Department at the University of Maryland College Park. You may have seen his stuff before in Al Jazeera, Fox News, uh, or uh, Newsmax as well. Dr. Nichols, welcome back. It's good to have you. Oh, Always great to be with you, John. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I I love this piece. I love your new piece in Newsweek. Uh, Once again, the title of it is Republicans Worried About the Social Security Deficit Should Support Immigration. I love it because it's moral, it's right, it's fiscally responsible, and it's going to enrage all the right people. (laughs) What was it that inspired this piece for you? I think I was just listening to uh, a lot of what people were saying. And, you know, I'm thinking about you know these great replacement theories and and all the things that we hear swirling around uh the reactionary right and you know of course after seeing the state of the union where president biden talked about how they want to cannibalize social security and medicare i thought it was important to actually you know kind of tie you know this this idea about the border and what they're all this all these theatrics that they're trying to get news hits over and also uh talk about social security and medicare and if they're really being honest about hey no we don't want to do anything to social security and medicare you know of course they're led by you know someone like rick scott who literally is a medicare cheat yeah uh the wealthiest man in, in the entire senate who does not care about Medicare or Social Security because he's worth $300 million. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I I thought it was important to actually talk about this and to enter this idea back into uh, the mainstream. We have right now a labor shortage, Um, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. There's a labor shortage. And I'm grateful for the fact that our elderly are living longer and people are having fewer children. Yeah. So, so what does that mean? Know. I mean, you point out in the piece, our country's population is aging, the birth rates are declining, and life expectancy, even after COVID, is still higher than in past generations. And who are we going to get to take all these jobs that we can't fill? Right. And you know what's funny, uh, John? I was actually just looking. Texas is giving people, there's a proposal in Texas a legislative proposal that would give people tax breaks on their property taxes if they have more children. You know, they are Come doing on, every- white people. Come on, white people. Get busy. That's it. Right. You know, it's it's funny. They, they said if you have 10 kids, you get 100 percent off of your property taxes. Now, it, you know, what makes me laugh about that 
Um, number one, of course, Texas being a, a border state and they'll do anything. I, I hope that all the black folks and Latinos just start, like you said, start getting busy, start having babies and looking for, you know, for that for that discount. I guarantee you that law will be overturned. Yeah. They'll start talking about, you know, austerity and, oh, we can't do this. If black and brown people start having a bunch more babies. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, this <laughs> yeah. is all stirred up by, you know, this reactionary racial animus that undergirds the Republican Party. And, and we have to acknowledge that. And this is a good way of saving Social Security. I, you yeah. know, I got attacked on, on online, you know, on Twitter. I was getting attacked by all these right wing, you know, influencers. Shocking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, no, this won't save Social Security. I'm like, the Cato Institute. They're not exactly left wingers. No, they say that's what's going to save Social Security. Well, I mean, you these Republicans who keep complaining about Social Security and yeah, it'll be running on a deficit and we'll need help at some point and we could do the smart thing like tax the wealthy or, you know, allow and you're talking about allowing more legal immigration. I talk about this all the time, doctor, that when you bring in adult immigrants into this country, you don't need to pay for their education. They're fully grown. They can immediately enter our workforce and start paying taxes and start paying into our social security fund. That, that yeah. I mean, right there. But on a personal level, I just kind of love the fact that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, when all of these people are in nursing homes, they're going to need someone to change and feed them. And it's going to be immigrants, whether they <laughs> like it or not. Absolutely. And, and you know, the other thing, are, uh, you know, of course, our uh, incredibly, quote unquote, woke military, you know, immigrants also serve because they want to get citizenship quicker. Right. I, I have a couple of friends, you know, one of my closest friends who's literally, you know, someone with a purple heart got shot in Iraq. One of my real close friends, shout out to my brother Juan. He, uh, you know, he was born in the Dominican Republic, but served you know, in part for the citizenship and, yeah. you know, sacrifice nearly died over there, got shot and went back into two more tours for an unjust war, unfortunately. But yeah, so they they will serve in our military. They'll serve our labor needs. You know, it, it totally makes sense. But again, it doesn't serve the this kind of right wing craziness that's all based on you know, racial animus and, and right. eth ethnocentrism and nativism. My great, great, great grandfather was uh, in the Merchant Marine from Denmark. He jumped ship in Brooklyn Harbor and fought for the Union Army in the Civil War to get citizenship. So he, he knew Brooklyn was going to be hip even back then. Um, <laughs> but I, I do have one concern about this because there are, there are some people who say, OK, but aren't you worried that if you have more immigration, it's going to hurt African-American workers because, you know, who's on the front lines? Who could be hurt the most by bringing in more workers? Is that a legitimate concern? I hear it a bit. I think it is a legitimate concern. You know, I, I've looked at this uh, a million different ways, but I, I will say this. First of all, the primary obstacle to African-Americans in the labor market is employment discrimination. You know, um, that is the number one. It's not immigration. You know, people like to say, oh, it's immigrants coming over and challenging for jobs. That's not what it is. It's employment yeah. discrimination, unequal pay. We know that, you know, African-Americans, even from elite universities and colleges, get paid less in their starting salaries. And, you know, there's all these kinds of statistics that I could run through right now, yeah. but I won't deal yeah. with them. So it's not immigration, but immigration is a concern. Uh, for people who work low wage jobs like that, that is there's some calculations where you could say that the main people that are hurt in the labor market by immigration are teenagers. That's that's the number one thing. Teenagers, for temporary, temporary jobs, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. But I would say a couple of things to, to the issue of African-Americans. Number one, right now would be the time to do it because we have record low unemployment among African-Americans. Fair um, point. So yes. That that's now is the time. That's the first thing I would say. Okay. The other thing that I think we have to add into the conversation is African-Americans oftentimes in, in some cases do different jobs than 
some of the working class immigrants. So, so, you know, just talking about like if we're going to talk about the border and we're not talking about someone coming over on a visa from, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Some country and they're highly skilled and all that. We're not talking about them. So we're we're going to talk primarily about those people. A lot of those people do agricultural work and farm work. That's right. Where African-Americans, you know, generally don't do that kind of work, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in large numbers. I'm not discounting black farmers or anything like that, but the kind of work that new immigrants do, the ones that come on the, what is it, the H-1B? Yes. uh, uh, Visas. I, I might be getting my visas mixed up. They are, you know, African-Americans are not going to challenge for those jobs because those aren't fields where African-Americans are. Okay. You know, we do know that farm workers or farmers need help on their farms. And we've seen this actually go really poorly where they come up with these strict immigration laws in like Alabama, I remember a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Really strict immigration laws. It's a good thing nobody eats a salad in Alabama because they couldn't have a salad the next day. <laughs> exactly. All these all these immigrants, regardless of documentation, started to leave the area and all those fields started spoiling, you know. Um, yeah. And also Americans expect certain kinds of wages for work, you know, for really physically well, taxing work. Exactly. And I, yeah. I think that's a and good they don't thing. want to and they don't want to pay a living wage for work. I mean, that's the other thing. Let's be honest about the dirty secret of America and labor is it's always, always our economy's always been propped up by exploitation of labor, usually by marginalized brown people, whether it, it whether it's slavery, whether it's the kind of slavery we outsource our manufacturing to now, whether it was Chinese immigrants forced to work the railroad. We've always found a way to avoid Fair paying problem. human beings a living wage. And that's always been, you know, the big lie that neither party will admit. I mean, if you actually didn't have undocumented immigrants and had to pay everyone a living wage, our our produce would cost a ton more. It's part of the same hypocrisy that I'm afraid both parties are are party to. Right. And let me just also say one other thing that's uh, not in the piece that people always try to challenge. They say that immigrants depress wages. And that's. Oh, yeah, I know. Simply not true, number one. But. Uh, On top of that, if there is wage depression, nobody talks about uh, the decline of unionization, the rise of population, you know, all of these things that actually depress wages. They put it all on immigrants, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean, which which uh, I think is ridiculous. You talked about outsourcing and, uh, you know, factories and other things going overseas, the use of prison labor. Those are the things that depress wages. It's not the guy who's coming over uh, trying to make a better life for his family. That's right. Now, you know. I got a question for you, doctor, because you know what Republicans are going to say? They're going to say, well, no, let's not let more immigrants. Here's here's an idea to save Social Security. Let's raise the eligibility age. Let's raise it to 70. And then we'll be spending less money. And so we don't have to worry. What do you respond to the raise the eligibility age argument? Um, I think it's unfair, particularly to African-Americans who spend their entire lives paying into the system. And I'm just gonna speak frankly and, and keep it 100%, you know, a stack or whatever the young people say right now. What happens is African-Americans pay their entire lives into the system. And as an African-American male, I'm on track to die in about 20 years, you know, because unfortunately I hate to say that, but on average, yeah. African-American males live to be 71. So you wanna lift the age to 72 so that I die before I collect social security after yep. working to pay for a bunch of white folks and, yeah. you know, and Americans, that's, you know, that's what they want. That's what they want to do. Yeah. That, like that's just not, that's not fair. Um, yeah. I think the eligibility age should stay where it is. And, you know, of course we need to improve healthcare for African-Americans so that they live as long as other groups that would help as well. But, you know, I think it's unfair to, to have these, you know, African-American people paying in, particularly black men paying Absolutely. into this. No, I mean, and that's then, why, you sorry, know, not go getting rewards. Yeah, no, that's it. Absolutely. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Progress. <laughs> 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I'm John saying This is Progress After Dark. You know, I do want to move away from the bigots to fentanyl for fun. But before we <laughs> do that, though, I, I want to say I love this argument that you have in Newsweek. I think the piece is great. I think it's very thought-provoking, and it's very fiscally and morally sound. They're going to accuse you of white replacement theory, aren't they? They're going to say, this is what Tucker told us about. They want to flood this country with non-whites, and, and, and Jews will not replace us. This is all that Hitler crap that we're hearing from the far right. And by the far right, I mean the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to say that. And, you know, the interesting thing, first of all, you know, when I think about this whole great replacement idea, it, it's always so ridiculous because these people, again, and you and I have spoken about this in the past, they're coming from majority Catholic nations. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, they're socially, you know, many of many of them are, are coming from socially conservative backgrounds. A lot of them don't like abortion rights a whole lot, you dumb Republicans. A lot of them could side with you on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, depending on which countries they're coming from, they don't have good experiences with socialism, you know, with what was called socialism. You know, you have people in Florida coming from Venezuela, you know, like yeah. there, there's a real opportunity for the GOP. But again, this is all about race, you know, yeah, and it is. the interesting thing is this has happened before. I teach a course, you know, in American studies. And, you know, first of all, I'm not so sure that white people, quote unquote, will ever be a minority in America, because as you and, and others who are descendants of, of European immigrants, at one point, they were considered something other than white. Right. But what happens is when whiteness is threatened, because this is all socially constructed, race is socially sure. constructed, it's not biological. Yes. yes. So once whiteness is threatened to become a minority, it just opens the door and lets a few more people in. It says, all right, you can come in, you can come in. I mean, I think that's what's guiding so much of this. And it's why your piece is so brilliant, because it's like, hey, Caucasians, you live with immigrants, but you really can't live without them. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of, you know, this whole replacement theory, again, this is the same kind of know nothing nativism that goes back to the you know to the 19th century early 20th century they were saying the same thing about italians that's uh, right and mobs and when they come over they, there's literally quotes of them saying they're going to make our population darker we need to you know keep them out yeah. but you know a lot of older this aging population of whites you know they're a little afraid and they don't understand that whiteness is socially constructed. All they have to do is open the door to a few more people and then whiteness expands and it's no and, longer a minority. That's but the way also, it's let, me, let me let me go even deeper then, because we could also explain to these Republicans that 40 years of trickle down economics where the rich have gotten so much substantially richer and middle class buying power has not been this low since before the moon landing. The poor have gotten poorer. The middle class is the top of the bottom. It's been a lot harder 
for young working Caucasians to have many, many white children as they did back in the days when the Kennedys roamed free in the hills. So it's like, ironically, it's been Republican policies, you could argue, that have led to a decrease in the white population because people can't afford to have kids. I got one and I can barely afford him. That It's just yeah. a reality. They wanted the rich to be so damn rich and the rest of us have had to adapt. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, they're not going to allow us to tax wealth and, cool. you know... I could go on a whole rant about taxing wealth. I think they they have a point when they say that it'll be challenged in the Supreme Court and that it's not constitutional. I think they actually have a point with that. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say they have a point is because we have to remember the origins of the idea that you can't tax wealth, that you tax income. The reason is slavery. (laughs) Yeah. Like, uh, you know, James Madison, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We want you to count our enslaved people as part of our population, even though they can't vote. Exactly. You know, that's where you get the three-fifths compromise. That's right. But we don't want you to tax our wealth because they actually are assets. You know what I mean? So that's where basically that whole idea comes from. And so we can't get a wealth tax on somebody like Elon Musk. And that's the rigged system. Yeah. You know, That's the they, capital gains tax. Capital gains tax as well. Oh, no, if I inherit this money, someone willed it to me. You, you, you can't tax me for it. So in other words, that, that's what they say. But what they're essentially saying is, if you work for your money, you get taxed. If you just sit around the house and let the wealth roll in from dead old relatives, you're fine. They're right. the ones who built this country. They're the ones who built this system. Right. No, absolutely. We need to find a way... I, you know, I believe to tax wealth so that people who don't get a traditional income still have to pay. And, right you know, we talk about, you know, the, the estate tax, you know, they moved it from $5 million as if that's not a lot of money, you know, and put it up to, what is it, $11 million now before you yeah. even get taxed? You yeah. know, you can give somebody, you know, Ten million nine hundred ninety nine thousand. I believe so. Know, yeah, <laughs> um, and and still not get taxed on it. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then they start going into East Palestine and saying these are our people. Oh, you know, yeah. And, and again, it, if you non non millionaire people, if this makes you angry, go out and buy your own senator. Okay, go out and buy your own <laughs> senator and fight back. Yeah, it's just this is the rigged system that they all tell us about that we scream and talk about and they keep on finding new ways to perpetuate it by generally terrifying hard-working white people that justice and equality for others is going to somehow take some shit away from you yeah you know it's it's always interesting you know i used to go on you know some fox shows me too with guys that you know the hosts that made millions of dollars and it used to always kind of infuriate me because they would be making this appeal to their audience like they had something in common with with their audience and i was some elite professor i'm like i'm a state employee like you yeah. know what i mean like i'm, I'm scraping to get by like oh you know, yeah but meanwhile they worship they worship a reality tv millionaire at birth with a gold toilet but you're the elite i mean this is life right. in a bubble this is how they do it it's it's crazy and i'm like you know you freaking have a you know a penthouse apartment in, <laughs> in Manhattan, and then you got your house down in Florida, and you try, you know, in some cases they travel with an MMA coach and all this. Why it's all this. almost it's almost like Fox on air hosts are complete liars and they know it. But who 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 would ever believe that? Right, exactly. I mean it's <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Let me shift gears briefly just to talk about America's sweetheart, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is single, <laughs> by the way, gentlemen. You know, fentanyl is the big thing. They don't actually want to do anything to make it harder for people to die from fentanyl. They just want to use it against Democrats. I don't want to play the clip, but I'll tell you the the caption of her tweet about the clip. Uh, A woman who was testifying before Congress and Marge tweeted, listen to this mother who lost two children to fentanyl poisoning. Tell the truth about both of her son's murders because of the Biden administration's refusal to secure our border and stop the cartels from murdering Americans every day by Chinese fentanyl. Now, this is a remarkable sentence because it's only one sentence. There are three apostrophe errors in it, and it's all complete lies and hypocrisy and exploiting pain for political points. Because I, I think these tragic killings of this woman's sons were in 2020 when Donald Trump was president. I mean, 
what is up with fentanyl? Is it just something that the Republicans have realized, oh, we can use this against people we don't like while doing nothing about the problem? Right, exactly. I mean, fentanyl's a real issue. You know, people are- Fentanyl killed Prince. Fentanyl killed Tom Petty. Yeah. Yeah. You know, fentanyl's an issue, but we should understand that the Biden administration is actually capturing more fentanyl at the border. You know, CBP is getting more fentanyl than, you know, the past administration. And that's actually a good thing. They're able to, to stop this at the border and at the source before it reaches, you know, our families, our kids, our friends. And like I said, I, I've lost a couple of friends to, you know, heroin overdoses. And I'm not even sure, you know, if fentanyl was involved or not. But I know that, yeah. you know, these were, these were not one guy was a lawyer like he wasn't. Yeah, he was a white lawyer whose grandfather literally created UPS. Like so he was not a poor guy. This is something that affects everybody. But to make these disingenuous arguments for partisan gain, you know, instead of saying, how can we fix the problem? How can we stop it? How can we stop even more? How can we attack the cartels where they are? You know, what are some solutions that we can come up with? But that's not what they want. They want fame. They want Fox News hits. They want they want viral tweets. That's what they're looking for, you know. They're looking to be to get a pat on the back. And it's really, really frustrating. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, I think she gets high on on her pre-workout. You know, I don't know if you saw her doing her, you know, her air oh, squat. I, 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 I heard about it. I didn't need to witness it, but I heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and her her uh, CrossFit dead fish uh, pull-ups. Um, by the way, I respect CrossFit. That's TM great. Clinton. I, I nothing but respect for her and her 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 commitment to physical fitness and filming herself in workout clothing. I, I admire <laughs> all of her public service. It's great. God bless her. Yeah. But it's you know this is a a problem that does affect a lot of American families. And when you start making it partisan, when and then making a fool of yourself when you realize that this woman's kids, you know. They, you know, unfortunately, when they passed, you know, it had nothing to do with the Biden administration. There was nothing no Biden to do. administration. It didn't exist. It makes a mockery of a real issue. But that's um, what they do. I mean, I mean, you're so right. You know, these same conservatives who are screaming about fentanyl, but they don't want to do anything about the proliferation of opiates. They will bend over backwards to defend the Sackler family, for example. And if you'll follow me through on this, you know, these same... These same conservatives who have had so many horrible anti-Semitic comments come within their ranks. I mean, you will not hear Marjorie Taylor Greene call out Kanye West or Nick Fuentes or Donald Trump for their many anti-Semitic statements. And now we're witnessing these these plots against the attorney general of Michigan and this man who was arrested for planning to kill all these Jewish elected officials. I mean, it's like there's, it seems like it's deliberate targeting based on their Judaism and they're not going to ever attack the people who radicalize this guy. They're going to go after Democrats and say that they're anti-Semites because they don't like the policies of the Netanyahu government. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, And, you know, you mentioned the Sackler family. I just want to say, you know, Giuliani's buddies, you know, who, who yeah. Giuliani actually was getting paid to promote their product, Oxycontin, right? But at the same time, you know, this rash of, of anti-Semitism, of course, they're not going to criticize it when people like Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene actually went to Nick Fuentes's events and spoke yeah. at his, you yeah. know, so they are, they are participants you know, and, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, someone who has proliferated so many anti-Semitic uh, conspiracies, then they want to get righteous, you know, and have some righteous indignation for the, you know, the far right Netanyahu. You're so right. So uh, right. Ben Gavir uh, administration. And, and it's just, you know, it's absurd. We We have to call them out on it. But I think one of the things that they do, for some reason, when it comes to anti-Semitism, they seem to be able to put the left on the defensive. And I'm not exactly sure how they're able to do that. But it seems like we're always seeming to have to be like, no, we're not anti-Semites because 
and we're having to explain. This is the problem always, with always. leftists always having yeah. to explain Israel. You know, criticizing Israel is criticizing the state, and it's different than criticizing Jews or Judaism. Ilhan Omar never went after Jews or Judaism. She went after Israel and lobbyists for Israel for the civilian government. Yeah, I'm with you, but again, they get away with it because the right wing base and the voters and the people who watch Tucker, they don't mind the hypocrisy and they don't really generally mind actual anti-Semitism either. Right. And and this is why I'm telling you, John, you got to get back on TV, bro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You. you and me, you and me both. We'll go pitch something in the new season. Dr. Jason Nichols, I'm so honored when you join us every week. And thank you for sitting in with our friend Joe Sudbay last week. What is the best way for our evil army of the night to follow you and keep up with your work, <laughs> sir? So definitely check out my, my podcast, The Working Class Elites. Um, thank you. We've got some really good, good shows, good shows coming up. And definitely go to uh, Twitter and you'll see me at uh, Dr. Jason Nichols. That's at D-R-J-A-S-O-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-S. Find me on all those, you know, Facebook, Meta, whatever that is. Uh, Find me at Jason Nichols, PhD. And of course, you can listen to me on TME. Hell yeah. A long time to come. As long as you can uh, tolerate us, we're thrilled to have you class this join up. And, and the new piece in Newsweek, I've tweeted it out tonight, but it's called Republicans Worried About the Social Security Deficit Should Support Immigration. Dr. Jason Nichols, thank you so much for classing up our show yet again. Thank you, my brother. Anytime. We will. Thank you. We will be right back. This is Progress. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. So the election of Donald Trump to the presidency in 2016 happened to coincide with the biggest rise in hate crimes in the United States since 9-11. And the hate lab, we'll get to them in a moment, found there were 1,000 racist attacks committed in the UK as a direct result of the 2016 Brexit referendum. And the new battle lines are constantly being drawn. We've seen COVID-19 give us a spike in anti-Asian hate crimes. And as our next guest has written, it is no coincidence that soaring hate crime figures are found in countries where the extreme right is rising. Divisive messages from public figures are directly linked to tipping some people into violence on the streets. But what is this thing we call hate? Is it in all of us? Can it be prevented? Can it be managed? Can it even really effectively be fought? Matthew Williams is a professor of criminology, widely regarded as one of the world's foremost experts in hate crime and hate speech, along with computer scientist Pete Burnap. He's the co-founder of The Hate Lab, a platform to monitor hate across social media in real time. Professor Williams has advised Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Google and British Telecom on the subject of hate. He's the author of the acclaimed book, The Science of Hate and what we can do to stop it. It draws on 20 years of pioneering research as well as his own experience as a hate crime victim. The science of hate goes through human behavior across the globe and across history from primitive tribal ancestors to artificial intelligence in the 21st century. It's a gripping examination of the elusive tipping point between prejudice, which we all have, and hate. It's a pleasure to welcome Professor Matthew Williams to SiriusXM. Hello, sir. Hi, John. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you for joining us. I love your book. I love that you wrote it. And you 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 divide the book into two parts, the first looking at what hate is. And, and that's what I'd like to ask you about. We're we're seeing a well-documented increase in hate speech online. We see bullying or, as I call it, peer abuse on the rise. Governments barely function. 
Is the world as paralyzed by hate as it appears, or is this another example of hate getting all the clicks and ratings, while the more common and boring peace and love fly under the radar? It's a it's a question I'm I'm often asked, and it's a really important question, um, and it's one that I tackle in the book quite early on because I think we need to kind of use that as a primer to get our heads around the whole notion of hatred, the definition of hatred, how it manifests, but also how prevalent it is. And one of the major problems, of course, in any scientific endeavor is measuring and observing the phenomenon and the study. And, you know, hate is the phenomenon that I am interested in. And so I've spent my career trying to measure it. And it's very elusive. It's very slippery. It's very difficult to get a purchase on in terms of that kind of scientific measurement aspect. And so, you know, to, to actually ask the question, is it more hateful now than in the past, possibly? You know, how much hate is out there is a tricky one. A, a, an example would be, for example, uh, in 2021 uh, in the US, there were around about 7,000 hate crimes. Uh, in the UK, there were 150,000 hate crimes recorded mm. by the police. That's a huge huge gap a chasm really and and you know on first on first impressions uh, a person might assume well oh britain uh, is is incredibly intolerant um what's going on over there um but in fact it's how we're measuring it uh, really in the uk we we approach it from a perspective basis so we ask the victim whether or not they feel they've been a victim and if they say a uh, victim of a hate crime if they say yes then it's recorded as such. In the US, it's slightly different. It's more yes. based on sort of evidence and so on. So it's, you know, that's why the numbers are so different. So when it comes to comparing countries and comparing time periods, it's pretty tricky. But the one thing that I argue in the book that is arguably so different uh, about modern times, uh, certainly the last 15 years, is the advent of social media and the way in which social media can accelerate hatred in in ways that we've never even imagined we couldn't have imagined before the advent of facebook you know 15 years ago and so i would argue that hate is more insidious now than it ever has been in the past because it's more pervasive it can invade the sanctity and the safe haven of the home um in a way that it couldn't before something like social media um uh, you mentioned bullying and peer abuse so uh i think when i was a kid in in school and i was bullied i could escape the bullying when i got home you know i could right. i could have my evenings and i could have my weekends and i could escape it if I was a kid in school now and I was being bullied for the same reasons, there's there's no chance I could escape it. You know, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, whatever I'm on, my bullies will be coming for me. You know, and and it's it's the phenomenon is 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 all encompassing now in a way that it, it hasn't been in the past. And that's the the point I make in the book is that while it's hard to count the number of hate crimes across the world and and compare over time and between countries what we can say with a degree of certainty is is that social media is making this problem worse I completely agree and i want to get to social media but is it also fair to say that in humankind we've never seen this much pushback against hate i mean we we talk so much about how much power hate has how much control hate has but that's only because there's a global response to hate there's an anti-hatred strain in every culture is that a sign that we're we might be doing better than it seems on the surface yes i think so i mean i i'm a, I'm a pretty positive guy you have to be working in this business right you can if you're going to study hate for 20 years you have to you have to have a positive outlook on these things otherwise i think you'd go mad and you know, when I look at hate crime statistics, the harrowing stories of hate crime, um, even my own case of of being a victim, there's always a, a positivity that can come from from these instances. I think if you look hard enough, um, and certainly, you know, uh, since since the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, the gay rights movement, we're currently in that kind of trans rights movement. Each stage of enlightenment in terms of how we have treated groups in society in the past you know we change and and things get a bit better but i'm also aware that you know even though now we're living in a more enlightened you might want to call it woke era i am very conscious of the fragility of the gains that we've made and i can see those quite easily being eroded and we, we're seeing it in the states right now um you know it, it, it's certainly oh, terrifying yeah. what, ha what happens in the supreme court and you know we're seeing it in europe too and 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 we we are seeing countries go backwards in terms of the advances they've made and when you look at survey data on attitudes towards minority groups in some cases they're hardening as opposed to getting to getting softer and more uh, and more tolerant so 
I am conscious that while we've made great gains and we are coming together to fight against hatred, that the forces on the other side are are still incredibly strong. So it's it's this tussling between the two is is still very very present. You mentioned your own attack in the late 90s, which you write about very powerfully and movingly in the book. You were an aspiring journalist and you were assaulted by three men outside a bar on Tottenham Court Road. And it seems like you're a prime example of turning pain into gold of survivors of bigotry who then grow up to be crusaders against bigotry rather than becoming bullies themselves. But what, what I found fascinating was all the findings in your book show that as you tried to research and understand the men who attacked you, you found that in all likelihood, you were remarkably similar in your biology and psychology. Absolutely. So it, the hate crime was formative in my experience and, and it changed my life. It, as you say, it changed my career. It changed my personal life. And, you know, I've, I've never looked back, uh, so to speak. You know, I, I turned something very dark, hopefully, into something very positive. To call myself a crusader, I think, is a bit of a stretch. But, you know, there, there are many people who do much more than I do. But, you know, my 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 forte is, is writing about the science and the case studies. And that's where I thought I could make my contribution. But there are so many other examples of people who have been victims of hate crime and have come out and fought against them on, on, on behalf of others. And that's really powerful. Um, exactly. And I, I keep seeing that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really important to, I think, it's very therapeutic in many ways, I think, because, you know, to how do you deal with, with the victimization? And I think actually engaging with it head on uh, is actually very helpful and psychologically speaking in terms of healing. And, you know, if the knowledge that you're helping others helps yourself. I think that's always the kind of philosophy I've always adopted. Um, and yeah, so ultimately, my own victimization, which also happened on social media. I've been a victim of, and I continue to be a victim of, of hate crime on social media because of my profession. Of course. But ultimately, yes. So it, it, turning it into something very positive is, I think, an important thing to do. I found it amazing in the book when you discussed what you might have in common with your attackers, where you go sure. deep into the psychology and, and discovering this, this innate human desire to be part of a group right? To be around people we perceive to be like us. And this whole notion, it's called groupishness. This is a very common evolutionary trait. Being with people who are like you increases our chances of survival. Yes. It was really interesting finding, actually, when I was digging into the science of this. And as you said, the the book is in two parts. The first part is kind of the foundational stuff, the stuff that we all have in common, our biology, our brains, our our hormones, and so on and so forth, our our sense of threat, or we are are perfect threat-detecting machines as human beings because we've evolved in that way. Our brains have evolved to become perfect threat-detecting machines. This is why we dominate our planet. We're very good at it. But um, those are the foundational aspects of our makeup that they predispose us to the possibility of prejudice and hatred. They, they give us the kind of the foundations for it in a sense, but we're not born hating. We have to learn all that on top of those foundations. So when I looked into the history of my attackers, you know, it, as far as I could, yeah, I figured out that, well, biologically speaking, we're very, very similar. There's very little that distinguishes us in that kind of, in the hard science way. What does distinguish us was the social and cultural and environmental aspects of their mm-hmm. uh, their existence versus mine. And what I came to realize doing this research is that if my life was somewhat different and was a bit more similar to theirs, I could have ended up perpetrating the hate crime exactly. as opposed to becoming the victim of a hate crime. And, exactly. and I think that's why I tried to communicate. Yeah, I tried to communicate that to the reader, that life circumstances, exposure to what I call accelerants in the book, can really shape who you become. It's not deterministic. I'm not saying it's inevitable, because there are lots of things we can't measure that still shape behavior. And there's this stuff that we don't know, just because the science isn't, isn't quite as good as we'd like it to be. But ultimately, if you layer on enough what I call social, economic, political, uh, and technological accelerants on top of that foundation, that that groupishness where we like to be part of a group. And if you're part of a group, then there's always an out group. And that out group, if it becomes threatening, then that's where prejudice starts to emerge. If you layer enough of those accelerants on top, then it increases your chances of hardening a prejudice and possibly then taking that further into hateful violence. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Let me ask you about the science just for a second, because I found it fascinating. Obviously, the capacity to hate is in all of us. It, it, it goes back to ancient times when our brain had to identify threats really quick. And on an evolutionary level, we still haven't learned how to turn that off. You talk about the fast but dumb threat detector in our temporal lobe, the amygdala, and how it often sounds an alarm yes. when it registers someone who is not like us. Is it the prefrontal cortex that tends to overrule the amygdala? Is that how the brain works yes. when we're handling this in a healthy way? Yes, absolutely. So the, all this stuff comes from sort of brain imaging studies, the, the first of which occurred in the 1990s. And there were some social neuroscientists, they're called, were interested to understand what, what, net, what the network of hate might look like in the brain. And they basically popped in some white subjects into brain scanners, measured their prejudices before they went into the scanner. So they had a, half of them that were anti-black in terms of their outlook and half of them that were pro-black. And then they showed them black and white faces in these scanners very, very quickly, you know, within milliseconds of each other. And the hypothesis was that those with anti-black worldviews would would have a different brain sort of pattern emerge uh, versus compared to the control group. And indeed it did. And it was, the as you say, the amygdala that lit up like a Christmas tree. And the amygdala is, is a part of the brain that is responsible for processing fear, uh, aggression, and a sense of threat. And it's one of the first parts of the brain that, that developed. I mean, we need it uh, because it, it it kept us alive. We wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for our, right. our superior amygdala. Yeah, we needed Fight them because, flight. you know, saber-toothed cats, yeah, absolutely, marauding <laughs> tribes, uh, freak weather events, all this kind of stuff that we were facing day in, day out, millions of years ago. We Our, our amygdala developed over time, got bigger and, and more adept and very, very quick at ascertaining a threat so quick, in fact, that it's the first part of the brain that registers threat. It bypasses all mm -hmm. the really smart bits at the front, the prefrontal cortex. In fact, there's mm -hmm. a link between sort of the optical aspect of the brain and the amygdala. It's really fascinating stuff. So it's fast but dumb, though. That's the, that's the key point. So very often when, when we see something that might be threatening, we have to put on the brakes because the smart part of the brain is a bit slower because there's a lot more processing to go on, has to then work out, well, the amygdala is telling me I should be worried about this and I should either scarper or, or fight. And then the kind of real processing happens. But of course, there are situations where all this breaks down because if we think about the decision to shoot in police encounters with suspects, mm -hmm. we need really fast thinking in those moments, those very high stakes encounters. And unfortunately, the research does suggest that uh, shooters are more likely to pull the trigger on a black subject than a white subject. And the research is pretty conclusive on this. But importantly, I think I need to, to make this clear, that whether the shooter is white or black, it doesn't make a difference to the outcome. So I think that tells us something about how this is learned. You know, so this 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 processing is a learned process, and we can actually undo that with with some effort. But unfortunately, because the way culture is, we we are where we are. Indeed, and uh, the way culture is is, I guess, in many ways, what the book is about. Obviously, some people can have an oversized amygdala and not be able to control it as well and overreact to things. We've all had that, Uncle. But I'm very curious, what should we draw in terms of conclusions from the statistics that show that hate offenders most of the time tend to be male, young, and in Western countries, white? 
that tends to follow the the general pattern of criminal activity, actually. Uh, so yeah. know, if we were to look, yeah, you know, it's it, it. So when we look at hate crime, it's good to compare it to average crime as well. And so the reason why why those groups, uh, certainly the age category, are more likely to engage in crime because. It, you're more likely to take risks at that at that time in your life. You're less attached to institutions. You have less to yes. lose. You may not have a partner. You may not have kids. You may not have a job, in fact. So you're listless very often. And you, you tend to find that those that, that end up being radicalized or sort of introduced to far-right or white supremacist groups have particular profiles. They usually have troubled backgrounds. They could have had a trauma in their past of some description. They feel that they don't belong with not being listened to. Um, they may have a history of abuse themselves. You know, you, you can start building up profiles. And it's not that these profiles aren't 100% accurate, of course. There are always folks that don't match them. But for the most part, you will see profiles emerging of, of those who are susceptible or vulnerable to radicalization. So, you know, and, and age is an important one, actually. It, yes. It's very often between the ages, as you say, of, of you know, eight, 16 to 18, all the way up to, say, 25. And it's important to point out there as well that the brain is still developing between those ages too. The prefrontal cortex hasn't finished developing until the age of around about 25. So all this kind of rationalizing, uh, risk-taking, cost-benefit analysis stuff that we do as adults, we're not so capable of doing it at that age because interestingly, our brains are still developing, which is why we see a lot more risk-taking in that stage of life. You're exactly right. And as you point out, evolution tells us that we're not inherently racist or biased against a religion or a sexual orientation, which is very comforting. I found it fascinating to see the social forces that can mold the hate in young people. Obviously, what we see in media and social media, obviously what our parents are and also who we interact with as children. Is it yeah. true that, that kids who attend mixed race schools before they're 12 are inherently less likely to have a race related bias? Yes, it is. And the research is pretty conclusive on that also. Um, and that's down to what's called the positive contact hypothesis, which is one of the most researched hypotheses in psychology. And there's been over 250 studies involving 250,000 participants in over 38 countries. And all that research points to the fact that positive contact with people different from us, and it has to be positive contact, not neutral or negative contact. Right. Positive contact with people different from us breaks down negative stereotypes and increases empathy and liking because all of a sudden you realize that you've got way more in common than what separates you. And if you get kids young in, say, elementary school, bonding with kids who are different from them in terms of gender, but also race uh, and other aspects of identity, religion, and so on, then there's no space for negative stereotypes to germinate, you know, because they're constantly being knocked down by personal face-to-face -face interaction. And it's that, that really does count a lot more than in any, anything else that the culture is telling you about a particular group of people. That face-to-face -face personal contact is, is prime when it comes to how your brain processes information about other groups and other people. So getting, getting that right would see a significant reduction in intolerance and hatred. But of course, it's easier said than done. How do you mix? I mean, I know Kamala Harris was famous for saying that she was bused in in Berkeley yes. to a mixed school, and you know, busing was a was a, sort of an innovative process that was pioneered in Berkeley, I believe. And you know, and, but it's expensive and it's difficult to achieve on a national scale. But you know, if there was a will and resource to do that, I I would that that would be a policy recommendation. I would suggest, of but. It can be controversial as well. So it's it's tough, really, to take the evidence from the lab, which which you can set up the perfect conditions to reduce prejudice, and then try to turn them into a policy that then changes behavior en masse. Well, the flip side of that, of course, is you, you write childhood scars can thwart psychological development to a point where normal coping mechanisms are either malfunctioning or absent. It seems the science is clear that traumatic childhoods can be a breeding ground for hate. Absolutely. And, and and trauma and what I call a lack of containment, a lack of containment of pain and misery and suffering in childhood can create conditions where later in life you don't have those coping mechanisms where you deal with pain and suffering and stress 
in pro-social ways, i.e. ways that are positive and healthy. Instead, you may leap to violence rather quickly because you don't have the capacity to deal with the stressor in another way. So we've all seen that guy at the end of the bar who's had a few too many drinks and he looks very twitchy and you're kind of like, I'm going to avoid this guy because he he, he looks like he wants to fight, you know, and yes. there, there, there are examples of that that we see every single day. And it's it's terribly sad because, of course, there's a lot of trauma and pain in the world uh, and a lot of it is suffered by children. And I think it's really important to understand the role that that plays, not only in in sort of antisocial behavior later in life, but also in, in prejudice and uh, hate. Because very often when you're feeling pain and suffering because of past trauma, you look for a scapegoat, you look for someone yeah. to blame. And if uh, a politician or an influential person or personality, uh, like a, a famous person, is is pointing a finger at a group of people and saying, well, it's because of this group of people that you're feeling this way, you're very inclined to buy it and believe That's it. That's it. That's uh, yeah, because you don't want to blame yourself. You probably don't want to blame your parents. So you end up blaming a group that is distant from you and you can put all your pain and suffering on them. And we see this routinely. Yeah, worked for the Klan, worked for the Taliban. If you're just joining us, our guest is Professor Matthew Williams. His essential book, The Science of Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It, is available in paperback. You made me think of this quote, sir, by the philosopher Eric Hoffer when he said, passionate hatred can give meaning and purpose to an empty life. And you cite this study from the University of Manchester involving these deep interviews with 15 young white British males who were convicted of, of racial violence. And I found it fascinating that when they were triggered or, or stressed, uh, they would take out their frustrations deliberately on minorities because they said they saw them as having less power than them. That's amazing yeah. to me that it, it's race hate always gives a home for unresolved pain. Yes, it's a... Uh... A lesser known, I guess, theory around the genesis of race hate. But I think we have to understand that because it's mostly young males that engage in it, um, we have to understand how masculinity and, and, and the search for masculinity intersects with that. And ultimately, when young men are, are stripped of power because of the trauma they may have experienced in the family, for example, they go and seek it elsewhere. So the most convenient and easy way to attain attain that power is to abuse someone who's less powerful than you. And in certain contexts, for example, where we talked about this study in Manchester, most of these young men were from a town called Stoke-on-Trent, which was very impoverished and had a high influx of immigrants from all over the world, but it certainly had a disproportionate number compared to the rest of the country. So all of a sudden, this feeling of powerlessness amongst a lot of these white males was being projected onto a scapegoat on populations and individuals who they felt had less power than them and they had less protection. And they knew that, you know, if I attack an Asian guy down the road, the chances are that, you know, no one's going to do anything about it because everyone's like me, you know, exactly. and, you know, you can create a really toxic environment. I was astonished and yet not astonished to read that the most common target for online hate is still women, because of course it is. So before I let you go, I, I must ask about the second half of the book, because you go so deeply and beautifully into the art of neutralizing hate speech, which obviously for anyone right. trying to go on Twitter, uh, we know that hate can be contagious. I mean, what are the top tools that people need to develop in themselves, not just to resist this, but to diffuse it? Yeah, one of the big arguments I make in the book is that um, we need to take more responsibility as users in terms of standing up against hatred on social media. From from what I can see, uh, we're not taking that responsibility as seriously as we should. We, you know, we we don't want to rely on platforms to mark their own homework because how much do we trust the platforms? Um, we don't want massive government intervention because regulation is something that we're a bit jumpy about when it comes to speech online, and that's perfectly acceptable. We need free speech to fight hate speech, you know, so less free Indeed. speech is not the answer. And policing is tied up with crime offline, right? So, I mean... To expect the police to 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 in any way get involved in this is is apart from the more serious of cases is is a bit daft. So we have to take responsibility. I'm not saying that we should be vigilantes. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying all. is that we need to become upstanders instead of bystanders. So imagine if you're in your local bar, your local mall, and you saw a person being verbally abused for their race or their sexual orientation or their gender. You'd probably say something. You'd probably 
stop in you'd be stopped in your tracks you'd kind of do a risk benefit analysis and think well what should i say something if in, if it's safe to do so or should i go and get the security guy i just passed and, and get them involved you know right this is the kind of stuff we do as responsible citizens in the physical world we should be doing exactly the same online and if we all did that and we did it responsibly with appropriate safeguarding and engaged in what i call counter narratives where you see a form of speech that's harassing or hateful and you you basically kind of get involved in the conversation say hey you know why did you say that you're harming another person there you know try to induce empathy and shame if you can that there are tactics that i go through in the book that people can use then i think we'd see a, a systematic reduction in hate speech and humor wit ridicule humor's great humor ridicule um i'd avoid ridicule i'd avoid uh, uh blaming and naming and shaming too much i think uh, i think a really useful way of of getting engagement the first thing you've got to get them engaged with you because sometimes they could just ignore you so it, i course. think being sarcastic being clever being witty always helps i think a study that uh, i recently read showed that a, a humor was a really great tool for getting those on the far right engaged in a conversation with you. So if you make them laugh, then then that can initiate the conversation. What a great pleasure to have you, Professor. Matthew Williams is the author of The Science of Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. I could talk about this book with you for days. I've been so looking forward to this. Thank you for your service. This is a profoundly moral and important and, and dare I say, gripping read. It's just terrific. What a pleasure. Please come back anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.